following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's turn our Bibles to our First Chronicles reading here. And we should be in chapter 8. A lot of verses in this chapter, a lot of short ones. <clears throat> Still, we are in plowing mode here. Yeah, this is going to be uh, it's going to be a challenge. Now Benjamin begot Bela his firstborn, Ashbel the second, Ahara the third, Nohah the fourth, and Rapha the fifth. The sons of Bela were uh, Adar, Gera, Abihud, Abishua, Naaman, Ahoa, Gera, Shephuthan, and Huram. These are the sons of Ehud, who were the heads of the fathers' houses of the inhabitants of Geba, who forced them to move to Mahanah. Manahath, Naaman, Ahijah, and Gera were forced, who forced them to move. He begot Uzzah and Ahihud. Also, Shaharayim had children in the country of Moab after he had sent away Hushim and Baara, his wives. By Hodesh, his wife, he begot Jobab, Zibiah, Misha, Melcham, Jeus, Sakiah, and Mirmah. These were his sons, heads of their father's houses. And by Hushim, he begot Abitub and Elpaal. The sons of Elpaal were Eber, Misham, and Shemed, who built Ono and Lod with its towns, and Beriah and Shema, or Shema, who were heads of their father's houses of the inhabitants of Aijalon, who drove out the inhabitants of Gath, Ahio, Shashak, Jeremot, Zebediah, Arad, Eder, Michael, Ispah, and Joha were the sons of Beriah. Zebediah, Meshulam, Hizki, Heber, Ishmerai, Jizliah and Jobab were the sons of Elpaal, Jakim, Zikri, Zabdi, uh, Elienai, Zilathai, Eliel, Adiah, Beriah, and Shimrath were the sons of Shimei, Ishpan, Eber, Eliel, Abdon, Zikri, Hanan, Hananiah, Elam, Antothijah, Ifdaiah, and Penuel were the sons of Sheshak, Shamsharai, Shechariah, Athaliah, Jaarshaiah, Elijah, and Zikri were the sons of Jehoram. These were the heads of the fathers' houses by their generations. Chief men, these dwelt in Jerusalem. Now the father of Gibeon, whose wife's name was Maacah, dwelt at Gibeon, and his firstborn son was Abdon, then Zur, Kish, Baal, Nadab, Gedor, Ahio, Zecher, and Mikloth, who begot Shemiah, they also dwelt alongside their relatives in Jerusalem with their brethren. Ner begot Kish, Kish begot Saul, and Saul begot Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. The sons of Jonathan were Meribbaal, and Meribbaal begot Micah. The sons of Micah were Pithon, Melech, Tereah, and Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Jehoada, Jehoadah, Azmaveth, and Zimri. And Zimri begot Moza, Moza begot Beniah, Repha his son, Eliasa his son, and Azel his son. Azel had six sons whose names were these, Azrikam, Bokeru, Ishmael, Sheariah, Obadiah, and Hanan. All these were the sons of Azel. The sons of Eshek, his brother, were Ulam, his firstborn, Jeush the second, and Eliphelet the third. The sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers. They had many sons and grandsons, 150 in all. These were all sons of Benjamin. 
right, chapter 8. One more, I think, to go here with quite a few names, and then we get into some more of the narrative section of, of the book. Well, I wanted to share with you uh, tonight um, also a little bit of uh, reading from Luke's Gospel. So if you could turn there to 22nd chapter of Luke as we think about the Lord's table. And we'll start at verse number 7. I want to speak tonight about what is the Lord's table, not a uh, novel concept to us. We know about it. We've studied this before. Um, and just give some definition and kind of a little justification for our belief in, a, in the memorial view or memorial interpretation of the ordinance of the Lord's table. To get started, we look in Luke chapter 22, verse number 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he, Jesus, that is, sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there, make ready. So they went and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you that I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes at his as it has been determined. Remember, God determined by his foreknowledge, by his decree that this would occur. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. That sovereign foreknowledge and decree of God does not excuse anyone from personal responsibility. Then they began to question among themselves who of them it was who would do this thing. The text then tells us the questioning kind of got sidetracked very quickly as they began to argue about who of them was the greatest. Just a very sad uh, turn there for them. And then Peter, uh, his denial is predicted and so on. So what is the Lord's table? Well, it's a memorial ordinance that the Lord has given to us to help us remember. Remember remember that in uh, our previous sermons in Titus, we have uh, been reminding ourselves of certain things. Remind the church these things. Constantly affirm them, repeat them over and over over the course of time. And that's what we're doing this evening. So we're reminding ourselves the Lord's table. First of all, the Lord's table is an ordinance, which is a command of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so it's commanded to the church as a visible sign or symbol of a saving truth of the gospel, okay? So it's a command, it's to the church, it's a visible sign or a symbol of, the sa- of a saving truth of the gospel, or the saving truth of the gospel, we can say. Uh, and for it to be an ordinance, we understand that there has to be some evidence of historical practice in the book of Acts 
of that ordinance. So that statement is kind of we put that into our definition of an ordinance because we're trying to answer the question, is foot washing an ordinance? And we don't take it that it is an ordinance. It's an example the Lord gave us to serve one another from John 13. If we read this segment we did in Luke but turn to John and find the parallel, we'd find the, the Lord washing the disciples' feet. But we don't see an illustration of that in the book of Acts as historically practiced as an ordinance. We do see the breaking of bread at the Lord's table, and we do see uh, baptism several times in the book of Acts, but we don't see uh, foot washing or other things that could be uh, ordinances uh, in, in, the, uh, in the book of Acts or the his early historical practice of the church. So it's an ordinance. We carefully distinguish that from what's called a sacrament. Okay, Some of your friends may be in a a Presbyterian a church or a, a Episcopal church or something, and they will call these sacraments. And you understand what they're saying, but they really do mean something different than an ordinance. So a sacrament is a what I call a mysterious means of grace, which accomplishes the thing that it signifies. So it's not a symbol merely or a sign of a saving truth of the gospel, but it accomplishes what it signifies. Uh, so, for example, the Catholic Church says sacraments are efficacious signs of grace. It's efficacious. They effect something. Uh, signs of grace. Instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church. Okay, so it's not all bad. I mean, instituted by Christ, entrusted to the church. By which divine life is dispensed to us. That's what they say a sacrament is. By that sacrament, divine life is dispensed to us. They say the visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces. Okay, so our, we're saying they signify. They're signs. They're uh, remembrances, memorials, if you will. Rites, but not having the, the graces present in them or efficacious in them and certainly not dispensing divine life to the participants of them. So uh, they would believe that the Lord's table, they call the Eucharist, is a sacrament in which God conveys grace to the people participating in it. So you can then see how they would say, well, if uh, God's grace is dispensed in it and divine life is dispensed in that grace, obviously you better partake of that daily or weekly or as, as much as you can. And if you don't, if you withhold yourself from that, then you're withholding yourself from the means of divine grace. There are four major views on the table uh, that as we kind of back up and just look at a bigger picture, there's our view, the memorial view, the memorial ordinance view. Then there's uh, the Catholic view is transubstantiation. So some miracle happens in those elements and transforms them into effectively the body and blood of Christ so that the partaker is actually partaking of Christ. Then there are two other views. I don't want to get all bogged down in them, but there's the spiritual presence view and the consubstantiation view, which is kind of Presbyterian and Lutheran views of this. Um, some substantial heavyweights in church history took each of these views, um, uh, Zwingli and Calvin and Luther. Zwingli holds the, held the memorial view, much like we have, and the others, Calvin, the spiritual presence view, Luther, consubstantiation, and of course, the Catholic Church, transubstantiation. 
the differ the the interpretations differ as to whether the Lord's table is an ordinance or a sacrament. They also differ in terms of their understanding of what does happen when the elements are used in a ritual, or we could say it this way, where is the presence of Christ in the elements? Are they, is the presence of Christ there somehow? Does he, do they become him, or is he spiritually present, or is it merely a memorial? So in transubstantiation, the substance of the elements changes and becomes the body and blood of Christ. In, in the kind of, as, that's kind of the, could I say, the hardest view, the, the, the wrongest view. Um, step down to consubstantiation. The body and blood of Jesus is present in, with, and under the forms or the elements. So the body and blood is present there somehow. The spiritual presence view says the Lord's real presence is in the elements, but only spiritually by the Spirit. And our view, the memorial view, is that simply the elements do not change. You eat them, you drink them, they are what they are. They are symbols properly considered. Um, so the other the views that we don't take somehow suggest the Lord or his body are somehow present in the special way at the elements and, and during the ritual. But the, our view teaches that the elements are the elements, and that our faithful participation symbolizes some things, but the elements of the ordinance do not give us Christ's presence. Okay? So again, you can see a massive difference. If you think that you know, the, these other three views are correct, boy, you don't, if you don't participate in the Lord's table, then the presence of the Lord is somehow not with you. Okay? But just because Christ is not present in the elements in the memorial view, that does not mean that Christ is absent from our service today, does it? The Lord is present everywhere at all times, and particularly inside of the believer by the presence of his Spirit, before, during, and after the table is served. But his human body is in heaven. I hope you can affirm that with me. It's not ubiquitous. It's localized. The Logos, of course, is omnipresent, but the human body of Jesus is in one location. You don't take the elements of the table to get the grace of the Lord or the Lord himself into you. You take the elements of the table because the Lord is already in you. Okay? You see that very, uh, very clearly throughout the scriptures. Um, <clears throat> let me share a couple of them since I haven't gotten to any of them yet. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. We can also look in John's Gospel in chapter 17, and we can see there in verse 23, Jesus says, I in them, this is in his high priestly prayer, as we call it, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Drop down to 26 of John 17. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. So just several examples there of Christ in the believer 
and perhaps one that you are familiar with is in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. Uh, So, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, so Christ is already in the believer. Now, none of this is meant to say that you should uh, take the Lord's table lightly. Our view does not teach to take it lightly. Our view teaches that it is a symbol, it's a ritual, a memorial service, a a sign of the graces of the gospel that have already been wrought in the believer's life and, in fact, are are wrought in an ongoing way by the work of the Spirit through the work of the Word. But just because it's not transubstantiation or these other views, uh, we're not downplaying the Lord's table at all. All Christians should be here at the Lord's table, like it or not, or whatever it is what we should be doing every, every month, every time we have an opportunity. I really believe that. And as you're under shepherd, it's important. It is important to your spiritual life. I've seen many people waxing in their spiritual strength and then they stop coming to the Lord's table and making it an important feature of their life and they wane and wane and wane and reduce in their spiritual strength. It's, it's not good. So you don't take the elements to get saved or to receive the grace of God or uh, to receive divine life. You take the elements because you already are saved and have this divine life. So the table does not convey divine life. The table reminds us of the new life that we were given at salvation that we now enjoy in communion with the saints and that's also, it's also a reminder of what we will enjoy in the resurrection in the future and when the coming of Christ becomes manifest. So all of this was systematic and historical theology, if you will, regarding the table, but the scriptures also have to be forefront in our view here. Don't forget the Bible. The Bible is our only infallible rule of faith and practice, and so we learn from some key passages Uh, the idea of the Lord's table. First of all, from Exodus chapter 12, the Lord's table, we will see, be reminded really, that it is an adaptation of the Passover. Exodus chapter 12. The setting in the Last Supper on the Gospels makes it clear that Jesus was adapting the Passover meal, and if you could say, we could say simply redefining a couple of its key elements, a couple of its key parts uh, to himself. And uh, it's pretty obvious, this connection, but we'll go over a couple of things. The ongoing practice of the Passover meant something, as shown in Exodus 12 and verse 26 and 7. And it says, and it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, by this this rite, this ritual that you're going through, this meal that they reenact, that you shall say to them, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord and who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So this was to remind later generations of Israelites what God did when he passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered 
their households. Okay? Now, I kind of went over that quickly, but let me say this again. It reminded later generations. The ritual brought up the question. The question allowed the parents to give the answers to the children so they could then in turn give it to their children and remind them of what God did when he passed over the houses of Israel in Egypt. Now, notice what the Passover did not do or what it was not uh, involved with. First of all, the later Israelites did not reapply the blood to the doorposts and lintel, did they? doesn't tell us that at all. They didn't reapply that blood. Now, do you see how I'm kind of connecting that to the Lord's table today? Because the subsequent reenactments of the actual event that occurred do not have all the elements of the original event. They did not reapply the blood of the lamb to their doorways. They remembered that that blood was applied, but they didn't do it again. So I think we remind ourselves that when we're taking of the Lord's table, that is not blood. That is the fruit of the vine. That is grape juice. New wine, I think, as it's called in the Scriptures, uh, pressed out from the grapes and reminds us of the blood of the Lamb that was applied to the doorposts and lentil, but really for us in the New Testament era, to us in cleansing us from sin. Secondly, the meal did not provide deliverance to later Israelites from the death angel. Okay? Well, there was no death angel, but... In the, later, in the later generations, that is. So there was no grace conveyed in it that saved from death. Thirdly, the meat, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs of the meal did not change in substance in the subsequent generations. Rather, the meal reminded the Israelites of physical salvation from God's judgment and from Egypt. Okay? So this is why we believe in a memorial view of the table by which we are reminded, like the Israelites were reminded of that great event in their history, we are reminded of the great things that Christ has done for us. Now, Jesus tied the meaning of his body and shed blood to the new covenant and to forgiveness of sins. And uh, although there's much to be said about the relationship of the Christian to the new covenant and how that all works, it's kind of uh, a more complicated subject than just simply saying, well, we're in the new covenant, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot to it and much more that we could think through together at some other time. But he does tie the, the meaning of his blood uh, and body to the new covenant. That is the foundation, that is the basis of the new covenant work that God will do in the nation of Israel and amongst all the inhabitants of the world when that time comes. Okay, so we saw that in Luke when we read it. We see that in the other portions uh, in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 as well. This blood is the uh, new covenant, or this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of their sins. So the cup signifies the forgiveness of sins. This uh, Lord's table was accomplished uh, this work that he did was accomplished in his body and in his blood. Uh, obviously, when he said that, this is my body, you know, he took the piece of bread, say, you know, here's the bread, he t- this is my body. The disciples well knew 
that what he meant was, this is a symbol of my body. Because his body was right there, and he was offering them the symbol of his body. So they knew that that's exactly what it meant. Same with the blood, that the cup represented his blood, and that is the pouring out of his life for their sins. So it became kind of, I guess I would have to say, painfully obvious that they were not doing a kind of uh, mystical thing where the bread was turning into the body that was standing right before them. Okay? They knew it was a symbol. Okay? Just like baptism is a symbol. You know that uh, getting into the uh, baptism waters, whether it's a tub or it's a lake or a river or a more sophisticated pool or baptismal in a church, that doesn't wash away the filth of the flesh. It doesn't wash away the sin nature. It doesn't wash away original sin. It does not affect any of that. It is merely a symbol of some reality that has already happened in the life of the believer. Now, there is a problem passage, and that is in John chapter 6. And there are many, many a folk who have struggled over this passage over the years. But John chapter 6, although I'm turning there in my Bible, is not a communion passage. So really my point in having us turn there is to say this it doesn't even belong. You know, first of all, it happened before the Lord's table was instituted. It did not happen in the context of Passover. It was given in the context of Moses and the wilderness manna. You remember that the Lord had given to the people that bread. He had fed thousands of people uh, and early in, in chapter 6 and then uh, departed from them, walked on the sea, came to the other side. People followed him. They wanted the bread. They were seeking from him the food. But he was teaching them something about Moses and the wilderness manna. When he said that, you know, you must partake of my flesh and my blood, he was not speaking of cannibalism. He was speaking spiritual words, John chapter 6 and verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Look at John 6, 54. He's not talking about literal eating and drinking anything. 6.54 says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So did I just contradict myself? I said he's not speaking of literal eating and drinking at all. Well, look it. Hold that verse in mind. Whoever eats and drinks has eternal life. Go to John, uh, John 6, verse 40, same discourse. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. To see and to believe is the literal meaning of the figure of speech, eating and drinking. Are you with me? Because they have the same result. Eating and drinking results in eternal life. Seeing and believing results in eternal life. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. He's not saying you eat and drink anything. He's saying you believe into him. You, you, you turn your life over to him. You turn from your sins and turn to Christ. You believe and see him, and you will have everlasting life. 
I think if you try to just remember John 6.40 and John 6.54, and then that verse 63, I think those three are the key verses in this chapter to untangle this idea that some people have. Well, you know, Jesus said you have to eat and drink, and this is eating and drinking, so it must be the same thing, right? No, it has nothing to do with each other. They're, they're, this is a figure of speech that he's using to get their attention because he gave them physical bread to eat just the day before for thousands of people. And now he's using that as an illustration of what it takes to be born again, which doesn't happen at the table of the Lord. So it's a remembrance as well. We just have a couple more thoughts here uh, that emphasizes the idea in the scriptures that the Lord's table is a remembrance. Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink or eat. And this is significant because we are forgetful people. We need those reminders. Uh, It's also significant because we very well understand the idea of a remembrance or a memorial. Uh, Who does not understand a birthday? It's a remembrance. It's a memorial. You're not born again every time on your birthday. It's just a remembrance of the fact that you were born. Holidays, anniversaries. Dates of death of your loved ones are significant at the individual and family level. Days of uh, independence and things for different nations are significant to them. And those are times of remembrance. Very simple idea. And the Lord uses that simple idea to remind us of his own work for us. And then finally, uh, it is a sign of the future. A sign of the future and a pointer. Jesus says that uh, he would not partake again until he came again, partake of the cup until he came in his kingdom, Um, and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and then expect his resurrection and return after that point so that he will partake again in the kingdom. The table points to the past, Jesus' broken body and shed blood, it points to the present, to our communion and sharing in the benefits of his life and death, his cross work, and it points to the future, to Jesus coming again. So remember, Jesus' uh, directions for the table point to the past, the present, and the future. Okay, In, in no place have we seen that uh, Jesus' body is present in some special way wherever communion is celebrated and In no text have we seen that the elements change their substance. In fact, much the contrary, they are memorial elements. And so that brings us to the end of our message tonight. And I hope this is helpful to remind you of what the table is and what we're doing when we participate. The 1 Corinthians passage reminds us that we want to partake in a worthy manner. I'm not aware of anything in our church, broadly speaking, that would prevent us from participating like it did in the Corinthian church where there were factions and divisions and all of that which would uh, cause the Lord's displeasure at our participation. We don't have uh, class divisions or other things in the church that, you know, the, the haves and the have-nots and like they had in Corinth. We don't have people, uh, you know, uh, being gluttonous at a pre-table meal um, and and those sorts of things. But we still should be cautious, shouldn't we, that we should participate in the table in a way that is worthy 
to the Lord. Not that we are worthy. Uh, we are unworthy sinners. But Christ has invited us to come to his table as unworthy as we and ourselves are because he is worthy. We're talking about not the inherent worthiness of us, but we're talking about our conduct at the table. Talking about are we being reverent? Are we considering that uh, we have brothers and sisters about us that uh, we may have some kind of difficulties with that need to be straightened out? And I think, too, it's a good time to just reflect on our general spiritual life. Are we walking with the Lord? Are we honoring Him with our conduct? Or have we fallen into a bit of a pattern of lazy sin, you know, laziness in terms of not being diligent against the sin in our lives? And so these are uh, useful, helpful things for us to consider when we come to the table. So let us make sure that we don't dishonor the Lord. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Very explicit. This is a memorial. In the same manner, he took also the cup after supper, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. It says, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May God be honored in our participation at the table tonight. Let me pray, and then uh, we will... Uh, after I finish praying, we will um, say good night to those that are on the live stream and will participate in the table here at the church. Our Father in heaven, we commend to you ourselves and our understanding of the Lord's table tonight. We want to partake in a way that is accurate to the teaching of Scripture, that is reverent to your person and that reflects our own condition before you. Lord, I pray for Fellowship Bible Church as we, as a family, participate. May it be a blessing to each spiritual life here. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a believer in Christ, my friends, I invite you to seriously consider participating. You might say, well, I've sinned today. Okay, so go home. Everybody, go home. If you're going to have that standard, you can't do that. Uh, we've all sinned today and every other day. Um, you say, well, I'm, I'm not quite ready, or he has some other excuse. Now, maybe you say I haven't been baptized. Well, why not? Why not? Is that because you refuse? Or is it because you simply... Uh, you desire, but you have not had opportunity. We've talked about that before. You let the Lord guide you about that matter. But do participate. Let a man examine himself, and so in that manner let him eat the bread and drink of the cup, if it's appropriate for you today. Amen.